0: This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli.
1: And I'm Margaret Flinter.
0: Well, Margaret, enrollment may not be over. Some reprieve is on the way for Americans who failed to sign up for health coverage before the February 15th close of open enrollment.
1: Well, that's right, Mark. The administration announced a plan that would allow those who had not signed up for coverage to do so. They're not going to avoid a penalty, but they will get covered and meet the insurance mandate under the Affordable Care Act.
0: While more than 11 million Americans signed up for coverage during the second open enrollment, millions more remained uninsured in a tax penalty is automatically assessed on folks who remained uninsured by February 15th.
1: And there's a caveat. This kind of reminds me of being late with homework (laughs) assignments as a teenager. People will have to attest that they first became aware of the tax penalty while they were preparing their taxes. They'll still have to pay the penalty for remaining uninsured last year. That's $95 or 1% of their income. But by gaining coverage this year, they'll avoid most of the penalty for remaining uninsured in 2015. And remember, next year's penalty is set to be quite a bit higher.
0: This is an extended open enrollment uh, that really only applies to folks living in the 37 states that rely on the federal exchange. However, though, uh, states that set up their own exchanges can opt to extend their enrollment as well, which some states already are doing.
1: Well, speaking of states relying on the federal exchange, Mark, the Supreme Court hearing on the legality of the tax subsidies happens on March 4th. The case, uh, as you know, sought to uphold a literal interpretation of the language in the law, which stated that tax subsidies only apply to Americans who are purchasing coverage through the state exchanges. It was written at a time when I think we all assumed that most states would set up their own exchange. But as we know, only a handful ultimately did
0: certainly it would compromise the tax subsidies now being used uh, by millions of Americans if they held to the strict interpretation it would compromise many Americans coverage under the law has lots of implications
1: absolutely and while the health laws fine print is continuing to be worked out we turn our attention to the myriad developers who are transforming care on the side of health care and technology our guest today is dr. Yulin Wong who's the founder of Intouch health and he's also the president of the the American Telemedicine Association.
0: He has over 50 patents to his name, including the first FDA-approved surgical robot, the ASOP, Uh, He's since uh, turned his attention to developing platforms for clinicians to do virtual visits. His so-called robot doc uh, should be quite interesting.
1: Absolutely. And Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org, will join us with yet another misstatement spoken about health policy in the public domain. And no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com.
0: And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook. We'd love hearing from you.
1: We'll get to our interview with Dr. Yulin Wang in just a moment.
0: But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's Headline News.
2: I'm Marianne O'Hare with these Healthcare Headlines. A number of states are weighing in on the decision by the Department of Health and Human Services allowing extended open enrollment for the second round of insurance sign-ups under the Affordable Care Act. The administration announced folks in the 37 states covered by the Federal Exchange will be able to still enroll for coverage for 2015, even though open enrollment ended February 15th. There's now a new extended period from March 15th to April 30th to gain coverage, thus helping folks avoid tax penalties for their 2015 tax year. Now states like Kentucky, who launched their own state exchanges, are considering allowing the same. Meanwhile, as the Supreme Court weighs in on whether language in the Affordable Care Act precludes folks buying insurance on the federal exchange, Qualifying for tax subsidies, the language originally stated folks only buying on the state exchanges would qualify. There's no real plan B from opponents of the health care law should the high court repeal the basis for those subsidies. But 87 percent of Americans who've purchased insurance on the exchanges receive some sort of tax subsidy. Millions of Americans would lose coverage if the Supreme Court rules against upholding them. The case is to be heard March 4th, decision by June. And the administration is also weighing in on employee insurance plans that don't cover hospital stays. Corporations employing largely low-wage workers who now must be covered under the health law were selling employees on cheap plans that offered no hospital benefits. The administration saying these plans clearly don't fulfill the minimum requirements under the health law and would not be allowed, as they would strap employees in substandard plans that would not cover catastrophic care. Turns out there may be some actual wisdom in those teeth, after all. study finds stem cells found in the dental pulp of wisdom teeth are perfect incubators for growing corneal cells. Researchers found the pulp cells could be coaxed into growing autologous corneas to help repair scarring from things like infection or other eye diseases. The study published in Stem Cells Translational Medicine. And pediatric allergies have been on the rise in recent decades, and researchers in Sweden may have found a contributing culprit. Babies raised in houses where dishes were cleaned in dishwashers versus by hand had 50% higher rates of allergies, eczema, asthma, and other autoimmune responses. Researchers believe it has to do with a growing trend, hygiene hypothesis. Which assumes babies being raised in developed countries are growing up too clean with sanitizers and other cleaning products that limit normal childhood exposure to bacteria and pathogens, thus, inhibiting development of their natural immune system development. I'm Mariano here with these healthcare headlines.
0: Uh, we're speaking today with Yulin Wong, a PhD, Chairman and CEO of Intouch Health, a global leader in telehealth technologies and support. Dr. Wong is also President Elect of the American Telemedicine Association, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the full integration of telemedicine into healthcare systems. Mr. Wong is founder of Computer Motion Inc., which developed ASOP the first FDA-cleared surgical robot. Mr. Wong has uh, published over 50 publications and has more than 100 patents to his name. He was elected to the National Academy of Engineers in 2007. He received his Ph.D. in electrical engineering, specializing in robotics from the University of California, Santa Barbara. Uh, Dr. Wong, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Well, thank you for having me. You know, you've really been at the cutting edge of innovation in the healthcare space, uh, having created... Um, Not only many patented inventions, but this first surgical robot approved by the FDA for use in the country, ASOP, supported in part by NASA, which was seeking to create a better robot arm for the space shuttle. I wonder if you could share with our listeners what you've learned from your early experiences and successes with health technology as we look at this vast amount of technological innovations in healthcare today and the changes that are abounding.
3: Well, you know, the number of things I've learned over the last 25 years is hopefully quite a lot. If we go all the way back to ESOP, which is the robotic arm we developed, and it was in the early 1990s, what we did was solve an unmet need in a newly emerging field of surgery called minimally invasive surgery, or more specifically, laparoscopic surgery, where surgeons were becoming proficient in taking out things like gallbladders through little tiny incisions as opposed to large incisions, which had previously uh, been the way surgeons worked. And and by using little incisions, they needed to insert a camera into the patient's body and having the camera that needed to be held by something or somebody and having someone else hold your camera was like someone else holding your eyes. And so building a robotic arm, which held the camera for the surgeon, which was voice controlled directly by the surgeon, we actually gave the surgeon back uh, direct control of their eyes, which then improved the quality of the procedure. But back to your original question, the whole idea, which has been you know, kind of a guiding principle to my career over the last 25 years, is trying to solve a problem, which is a problem for the user, a problem for the healthcare system as a whole, and then a problem which hopefully really brings benefit to society. So you have to kind of overlap all of these requirements simultaneously.
1: Well, Dr. Wang, I'm not sure that we stop often enough to uh, reflect on when a disruptive innovation really has been a force for what we now think of as the triple aim, improving quality, uh, lowering costs, and improving care, and I would add safety uh, and suffering probably to the list when it came to minimally invasive surgery for those who go back far enough to remember what those scars used to look like. Um, but maybe for the benefit of our listeners, you could talk a, a little bit about how these uh, the robotic innovation in particularly, and again, I think it's a metaphor for lots of other innovations, has uh, changed the way we train people, uh, has ushered in a new generation of surgeons. And do you have any metrics that illustrate the impact that the robotic technology in particular has had on on care, cost, and outcomes?
3: So I've been involved in basically two different movements. One is on the surgical robot side and the second is on the telemedicine robot side. And I think the answers to your question are a little bit different depending on which one. On the surgical robot side, where the whole idea of these surgical robots is to enable more complex surgeries to be done minimally invasively and therefore reduce suffering for the patient as well as speed up recovery time, you know, that's really been the objective So when you take a particular procedure from an open procedure to a minimally invasive procedure using a robot, there's a whole learning curve. It's an issue of really it's a new procedure. So take the one which really took off for robotic surgical systems, which is the removal of the prostate for men's prostate cancer. And so the training process of that had to be done very, very carefully, where there's a whole process of didactics, laboratory setting, a process of mentorship, and then evolving to where a surgeon is able to do that by themselves. But again, it's the surgeon learning a new procedure, but then having the benefit and the tool of a robotic surgical system, because without the robotic tool, that transformation was actually not even possible on the telemedicine side using what we call remote presence robots, where we're bringing a physician to the bedside of a patient from afar the actual usage of the technology is actually quite easy they can learn how to use the tools in a matter of you know minutes or tens of minutes but what has to happen is the whole workflow the way a physician adjusts his or her workflow in terms of how they go about their day Uh, changes. And in fact, the healthcare system, which is now deploying telemedicine, they have to rethink about how they're going to be interacting with their patients in what venue and what is the workflow in order to do that. So for example, one of the areas where we've done a lot of work is in telestroke. The patient comes into the hospital, which is perhaps a smaller hospital, doesn't have immediate access to a stroke neurologist. Now they page a stroke neurologist at a tertiary hospital or a larger hospital who can beam in through a telemedicine robot to help take care of that patient, the you know, that's a whole workflow which did not exist before telestroke. How the tertiary physician or subspecialist interacts with the on site physicians, the relationships there all have to be kind of rethought and retooled so that people in a collaborative way, know how to, how, to, how to approach the whole system of care.
0: So these sort of, I guess you call them robot doctors, certainly we're seeing uh, right now uh, people using their smartphone, connecting with a provider. Uh, we've been having people on the, guest on the show talking about uh, the iPhone uh, replacing the stethoscope. You know, obviously, we all grew up in the uh, Star Trek generation. So I'm trying to think about this combination of Watson meeting Rosie the maid on the Jetsons, right? And these are, I think you've described them as not replacing the physician or the provider, but extenders. So what else are you sort of exceeding distant capabilities and diagnostic tools uh, that I might carry on my iPhone? And how's that world evolving?
3: Well, the world is evolving very quickly, and I'll, I'll tell you, it's an incredibly exciting place to be. Where we're going from kind of a, a cottage industry of healthcare delivery to where, where your local doc is the total range of healthcare services available to you as a patient. That's changing. Where using a healthcare delivery system where virtualized care, in other words, you, you, you have the capabilities of the world at large at your disposal is the way things are happening. So so you've got this aging population mm-hmm. that's happening in the US and around the world where older people need more care than younger people. You've got a uh, continuing increasing of complexity of medicine. Turns out there's about two hundred thousand medical journal articles published a year. It turns out in 1970, there were about 10 different medical subspecialties. Today, there are 150 medical subspecialties. Endovascular neurosurgeons, that didn't exist a decade ago. Neurological intensivists, these types of subspecialties didn't even exist 10 years ago. If you were a patient, you'd want access to the best subspecialty that you could have, so unevenly distributed quality of care, and yet we want to deliver high-quality care consistently and lowering the cost. Now the question is, how do we do that? And it's really through this kind of virtualized delivery of care that can happen. One huge movement which allows this evolution, one is the mobile devices. So everybody's carrying around the second one, which the mobile devices build on top, is the Internet, where live interactions, real-time interactions can be done all over the world now because the bandwidth and quality of the Internet is now there. And then furthermore, the electronic digitization of healthcare information. So you can actually virtualize the delivery of care, and I think this over the next decade, it's going to completely revolutionize how healthcare delivery
1: happens. Well, we couldn't agree with you more, Yulin, that the pace of innovation has been breathtaking in this area of virtualization of care and telehealth, telemedicine, uh, telecare. And so I'm going to put innovation and, and speed and revolution on one side. And then the concrete wall that they sometimes smack up against called regulation and coverage, uh, which can really slow down how we get these uh, incredible innovations into the hands and the care of people who need it. So maybe you could share with us a little bit, how, how is this going on the regulatory front? I know we talked to the FDA about what apps should be regulated versus not regulated a while ago. Within your field or your industry, how, how are those developments coming
3: well, so you hit up on one, which we deal with all the time, the FDA. And the FDA, you know, their mandate around regulating medical devices is consistent and will stay, I think, the way it's been for the last many decades. So when you build a medical device as dictated by the FDA, then it needs to be regulated. For example, a stethoscope is a medical device. If you turn an iPhone into a stethoscope, it's a medical device and needs to be appropriately um, dealt with from a regulatory standpoint. And it's actually not that difficult in terms of understanding that line. The other uh, big area of regulation is HIPAA, HIPAA compliance in terms of uh, privacy and protection for patient information. And that bar is continually getting tighter and more rigorous, uh, quite honestly, as it should, because I think the concerns about hacking and and cybersecurity are also continually going up not only in healthcare but across our society as a whole. The other area which is is, is important too is the whole areas of when can you practice telemedicine and how is it legal to practice right. it. And these are like things around licensure, right. credentialing, privileging. And this area is actually kind of messy. And quite honestly, is probably going to stay messy, but this is, so my role, I'm actually the current president of the ATA, American Telemedicine Association, and the ATA is really kind of the leading organization to drive clarity and hopefully improvement in these areas of credentialing, licensing, privileging, and, uh, and, and that's, you know, that's at the state level and there's state laws involved in addition to federal laws. And that's going to move at whatever pace it continues to move. But in general, the legal environment is moving in the direction supportive of more and more telemedicine kind of interactions.
0: We're speaking today with Yulin Wong, PhD, Chairman and CEO of Intouch Health, a global leader in telehealth technologies and support. Dr. Wong is current president of the American Telemedicine Association, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the full integration of telemedicine into the healthcare system around the world. Uh, Yulin, why don't we Delve a little more into the to the work of the American Telemedicine Association. Maybe tell our listeners about its staffing, location, agenda. Sounded like your focus had both state issues, federal issues, regulatory issues. Um, people who are who are excited about trying to promote telemedicine. Uh, tell us a little bit about the association.
3: Yeah, I'd be happy to. The American Telemedicine Association is based in Washington D.C. It's been uh, in existence since uh, 1993, so Hmm. it's a little over 20 years old. It is the largest and longest uh, standing association in this field and therefore over the last several years when telemedicine quite honestly has become in vogue were in the early 90s and through the 90s, I would suggest it was much more of a research topic than today it's going mainstream so the organization, it's in existence for several reasons, and one is to actually drive improvement from a regulatory environment that we've actually been talking about, and so that's why it's based in D.C. It's always interacting with the governments in order to educate the government on the benefits of telemedicine and therefore what what type of governmental regulations uh, should be thought about with regards to Uh, improving the use of telemedicine. It provides a forum by which people meet and discuss the issues around telemedicine. And in fact, the annual meeting is coming up in May this year in Los Angeles, where there's not only something like 500 presentations, there's also a large exhibit floor of 250 plus different companies which are now working in this field. So if if someone wants to really learn about telemedicine quickly, that's really the best place to go, in my opinion. It builds standards and guidelines on how to perform telemedicine safely and effectively for various applications, and it goes through a quite rigorous process. And then as some of these new methodologies of telemedicine are being pushed forward like direct-to-consumer telemedicine interactions where a patient from perhaps their workplace is interacting with the primary care physician via a telemedicine interaction, there's a new type of accreditation process where companies offering this type of service are being accredited by the ATA in order to make sure that they comply with, you know, best practices. Mm -hmm. So So those are a few of the things that the ATA does.
1: You know, we on the show often we focus on healthcare delivery, policy, and innovation in this country, but we also try and keep a global perspective. And I, you know, have learned early on through our work and through our conversation with other guests that, uh, in some ways, mobile and, and telehealth offers a level of promise to developing countries. That even exceeds that which we see in the United States. Can you tell us for a moment what you think the potential global health impact of these technologies are and how you see uh, this improving uh, care around the world, not just in the United States?
3: I think the opportunity for telemedicine in the global world is, is huge and um, perhaps even much more profound in some of these other markets than it is, even is in the United States. Because in the United States, I think telemedicine is being driven not only to work on uh, improving the quality of care, but, but really working hard to reduce cost of the delivery system. In much of the emerging markets, people don't even have access to care. And so using telemedicine is the only way they even have access to care. And so, for example, um, I was in a talk with with one of our own people who were walking our company through a story within the last couple of weeks in Bolivia where they – brought in an expert from Canada to help take care of a patient in the Bolivian Andes who's had this genetic problem, which nobody's been able to diagnose in Bolivia for his whole life. And so it was properly diagnosed uh, from a Canadian subspecialist. I mean, it's a life-changing thing for, for that child and the town at large. It was It was a town of like 1,500 people in mm-hmm. the Bolivian Andes. And so these are the types of things which are possible with telemedicine in the world at large, where there's just a large, large number of people who don't even have access to care, and this can this can solve that problem.
0: We've been speaking today with Yulin Wong, PhD, Chairman and CEO of Intouch Health, a global leader in telehealth technologies and support. You can learn more about his work by going to IntouchHealth.com or americantelemed.org. Eulon, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare Today.
3: It's a real pleasure and thanks for bringing me on your show.
0: Conversations on Health Care, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about health care reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week?
4: President Barack Obama says the Affordable Care Act is working, quote, a little bit better than we anticipated based on the 11.4 million people who signed up for insurance on the exchanges during the recent open enrollment period. That is better than the administration anticipated, but worse than a Congressional Budget Office projection. The administration's preliminary estimates are that 11.4 million either signed up for or re-enrolled in private marketplace plans during that period. Obama says in a White House video that that's great news and the Affordable Care Act is working a little bit better than we anticipated. The Department of Health and Human Services told reporters in November, just before open enrollment began, that it anticipated enrollment would be between 10.3 million and 11.2 million. So 11.4 million is a little bit better than that. But an HHS analysis said the figure would end up being lower by year's end as some people wouldn't pay premiums or would take other insurance. The analysis estimated that between 9 million and 9.9 million would be the total for marketplace enrollment in 2015. The administration's November analysis moved the goalpost saying it would take longer than CBO estimated for marketplace enrollment to grow. The CBO expects a major expansion of enrollment in the near future, jumping to 21 million people in 2016 and then 25 million in 2017. HHS said that kind of growth could happen over four or five years instead.
0: Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. When Leanne Brown was a graduate student in nutritional science at NYU, she came to understand the enormous challenges of eating healthy foods while doing field work with some of New York City's more impoverished populations. And when it came time to do her thesis, she thought, why not write a cookbook of health recipes aimed at the millions of Americans living on food stamps or SNAP stipends of $4 a day.
5: $4 a day is sort of the general rule of thumb for around how much a person who is qualifying for food stamps would have to eat per day. So we felt like that was a more useful sort of explanation sort of explains like a budget range.
0: She learned that while poverty was a serious issue, the lack of access to nutritious food was also contributing to obesity and poor health in many of these families. So she conducted extensive research on shopping and healthy cooking techniques and crafted Good and Cheap, a cookbook aimed at not only teaching these families how to shop for affordable produce and healthy foods, but how to get an entire family to cook in a more healthy way.
5: I really wanted to arm people with the ability to walk into a grocery store and say, like, "Okay, this is on sale. I can totally make something delicious out of that. I know how to do that. And, you know, that's not the easiest thing to be able to do. For a lot of people, you go, this is the recipe I have. This is my list of ingredients. I better go and carefully shop for each of those. But that doesn't allow you to sort of find the deals and find the value um, In order to really get by on, on such a small amount of money, you need to be able to be adaptable.
0: Her thesis was so well received, she launched a Kickstarter campaign to raise enough money to make the book available at soup kitchens, women's shelters and community health centers. And for every copy she sells, she gives one free copy to a school, a health center or organization that requests it.
5: We can't give these books away completely free, but the idea is that this is a cookbook that needs to be put into the hands of someone who really can't afford the cookbook. Um, So that's where the idea of doing a buy one, give one came from, was sort of like there are people out there who are really excited about this issue and have money to spend on it and who can appreciate that if they can sort of help to subsidize those who can't.
0: Well, a new version of her book comes out in June. She's made her book available as a free PDF download to anyone who wants it. Good and Cheap a cookbook aimed at the food stamp population, or anyone else on fixed income for that matter. Teaching them how to shop for healthy produce and making that healthier choice into delicious meals. Helping to positively influence their diets, obesity, and well-being. Now that's a bright idea.
1: This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And
0: I'm Mark Maselli.
1: Peace and health.